here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to try to wrap up a couple loose ends and then answer one or two questions. And then we're going to watch a video. It must be pretty decent because I don't like showing videos much, but you'll see why in a moment. So I've sensed over the last couple weeks as we've been wrestling with the purpose of the church that we've started to bleed together a couple of the questions we're answering. So I'd like to put three questions on the screen and see if we've answered them. The questions are, what is the purpose of the local church? The second question is, are we meant to be part of a local church? And the third question is, what constitutes a local church? And part of the frustration, I think, that we have seen in the last four weeks, honestly, could I be pastoral for a moment, even though I said last week I wasn't a pastor, could I be pastoral? Some of you just don't want to go to a church or you'd like church to look the way you want it to. But I will take blame for some of it too. Because we've tried to summarize so much in a few weeks that maybe our wires got a little tangled and I'll take the blame for that. How about my fifth book about why young adults are leaving the church? <laughs> Seems like there's no end to the books that are written. And all of them, are, by the way, are very good. Uh, very good books. Like I would recommend Ed Stetzer's Lost and Found. I would recommend uh, the book I'm reading now, which is The Essential Church by Tom and Sam Rayner. Uh, I would recommend Quitting Church, the one we talked about the first week, or uh, the one that David Kinnaman has just written from the Barna Group. I would recommend that one as well, which is You Lost Me. And you're going to actually see Ed Stetzer in the video tonight. And I got to tell you that I think Lost and Found, well, probably one of the better ones of all of them that I've read now. I'm on my fifth one. And I think the reason I like Lost and Found is he spends a lot of time on the solution and a small amount of time on the problem, which is the opposite of every Christian book, which spends three quarters of the book scaring us and then one chapter trying to solve it. He's actually spending most of the book trying to come up with solutions. So let me go back to blaming myself. I think some of the confusion may come because we try to do too much too quickly in answering these questions. Let me see if I could separate them out for just a moment. What is the purpose of the local church? I was having a conversation with Philip last week after the, the talk, and you might have even heard it during the talk, which is the sentiment, I still don't feel like we've answered the question that the whole series is about. What is the purpose of the local church? We've talked about what churches should do, what constitutes a church, but what is the purpose? And part of it is, Morgan covered it in the second week, but I don't think we heard it. And the reason I heard it was I was just editing that podcast, and I was listening to it very carefully, and there it was, somewhere in us thinking about where we're going to dinner. I think he said it, and we skipped right over it. Here it is. I'm going to put it on the screen. He quoted from one of the books he was reading that the purpose of the church is to be the sign of witness and foretaste of where God is moving in all creation. That's the fancy way to say it when you're trying to say it a little differently than everybody else is saying it. I'm going to say it this way. The purpose of the church is to live out what God is doing in the world. And here's the key word, collectively. The purpose of the church is to do whatever God wants his followers, his disciples, his body in the world to do collectively. And the collectively is the part that we sometimes don't like. Morgan was teaching on Wednesday night when we were doing a little bit more in depth on the purpose of the church. And he was reading from Acts 2, talking about how they shared everything together. They did everything together, 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 together. And incredibly, in the midst of a conversation about how things are supposed to be done together, 
one of the comments that came out of that same conversation was a comment from a participant in the group who said, you know, the way I see it is no matter where you are, you just need to be the church. And the undertone was by yourself. And I thought, how odd is that? Because the whole purpose that Jesus was trying to leave his disciples and he was praying for them in John, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. He's praying upon them a desire that they meet collectively, that they do everything collectively, that they express their faith collectively. I thought it was odd that someone came up with the comment that we could just do it on our own. I know you can. I know we want to. And I'm not saying you could never act alone. What I'm saying is, Jesus always hoped, intended, and some of you don't like the word commanded, but you could maybe even go that far, that we do it collectively. So whatever God is up to in the world, the church is supposed to be the collective effort to do that. And I don't mean the church universal. Because the other thing that Morgan made very clear that I picked up also in week number three is the universal church doesn't meet it doesn't do things. It's just your membership in the body of Christ. But you still need to be doing those things. And I've heard it over and over in this room, but I can pray on my own. I can do this on my own. Yes, you can. And even Morgan said in week number two, yes, you should. But the purpose was for us to do it whenever possible collectively. And that is the purpose of the local church. Now, as soon as I say that, I know that in my conversation that I continued with Philip last week, that doesn't really answer much. He doesn't say, well, wait a minute, all you said was the purpose of the church is to do what God wants us to do just together. That's not an answer. I want a list. And this is the difficulty because people who are studying the subject of ecclesiology, the actual beliefs about what the church should be, they've written all sorts of books and people have different opinions. People believe that, you know what, the church should be about evangelism. And somebody else will say the church should be about mission. And somebody else says the church should be about service. And I could give you my prescription. Morgan has given us some of his prescriptions. And we might even disagree. But what we're disagreeing about at that point is, what is it that God wants to be done? Not how should it be done, which is collectively as local church communities. That is the purpose of the church, is for us to discern, what is God doing in the world? How is he moving? What is his mission in the world? And we are supposed to collectively get on that mission together and put our backs into it. That's the purpose of the church. I could simplify it really simply as, as Philip and I were talking last week. Like what if the only thing that Jesus ever wanted done was for us to remember him in communion? Then the purpose of the church would be just to have communion. That would be the only purpose. But of course we know that he had many other things he wanted his disciples to do. And where people debate is, is that something we are supposed to all do? Some of us do. We're supposed to do all the time. And we're not going there because this isn't a talk on what is the correct ecclesiology. What is your correct view of how things are supposed to be done? We're just trying to wrestle with, is there even a purpose at all? Yes. That brings us to question two. Are we meant to be part of a local church? Yes. And I really made that case in week number three, so I'm not going to debate it all over again. Go back and listen to week number three, which will soon be up. And it really is a combination of two things. It's a combination of what we talked about, the universal church doesn't meet. Some things are commanded of believers collectively, and the only way to do them is through the local church. And we looked at the language of how even the word ecclesia 
reminds us of local assemblies. So that's the second question. Now here's the one I'm the most open on. The third question. What constitutes a local church? And that's exactly why I said we're not doing a whole series that is going to pull out all the books that have been written by people about what the church should be doing. Because there's millions of opinions on it. Well, not maybe millions, but yeah, okay, millions. A lot of, I mean, I just no end to it. Last week, we got a little bit of pushback saying, I don't think this is the right list. Hey, look, I've read five books now, and all of them have a slightly different list. For example, one list that I saw, and you might even see tonight, some part of this in the video would say, here are the things that are biblically mandated. They said that you must speak the truth and love to one another. That must happen in a church. You can't do that by yourself. You need to confess sins. There's a commandment to confess sins to one another. So maybe on this list should be confession of sins to one another. You can't do that if you're not part of a body. Now you might say, of course I can. I'm just telling you what somebody else's list says. Covenant community, pastoral oversight. So you see there's some, there's some leniency here. Let me put it in a way that we can frame it where it matters. On one end, there's a church service on a Sunday where you go and it's a liturgy and you have to do certain things every Sunday. On the other side, there's the dinner party that all of you want to go to and call a church. Remember that? A group of Christians who just meet together. Those are probably at two extremes. What I'm very open about is I don't know at what point you can say as you walk from one extreme to the other that you've actually become a church. We might disagree. Last week, Cormac and I disagreed. We might disagree on where that point is, and that's okay. Because again, what we're debating at that point is not should you belong to a church, is there a purpose to the church? What we're debating is at what point have you become a church? I would say that a group of Christians just meeting together for dinner is not a church. You have not met the biblical mandate of joining a church. But you might think it is a church. And I'm not going to arm wrestle you over it. I'm just going to say, think clearly, there are some things missing in my mind. Now, we put up some of these things that were biblically commanded for believers to do together as examples of what I think. And Morgan actually is the one that did this work, so I support his work in this because I've seen it supported by other authors, that that's probably some things that would indicate that you're a church. I also said last week that I don't think Exodus is a church for some of these reasons. I said, you know, we, we're not pastorally led. We don't have an engagement of discipline and authority. I don't think that we're really strong in exhortation. I don't think that we have this focus on evangelism and lost people, and especially not on multiplying disciples. But it's okay if we disagree. You might say, you know what? I'm sorry, Exodus is a church. And we might even have two people here, right, from two different seminaries even, who might say, no, 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 Exodus is exactly the model of what a church should be. And somebody else is like, that is nowhere near a church. You know, that's okay. Because I feel like we've still answered the first two questions. We know the church has a purpose. We know we're supposed to be a part of it. And now we're just quibbling about the details, about is this a church? Is this enough of a church? Is it not? And I know, as I read these books about where young adults are, of course we want a looser version of a church. We want a less institutional version of the church because of our skepticisms, because of our, we despise authority in some ways. We want everything to be egalitarian. I just want you to be in a place where you can understand to ask the question. Because I can see that dinner group slowly becoming a church. 
And I could see somebody making an argument that says, it is a church, and here's why. And I might say, wow, okay, you've convinced me that it still meets the very same purposes in the end. Philip. One of my thoughts, or questions, I guess, was um, with the first question, how you said that the purpose of the church would be to um, like basically do what God wants together. Like, um, one of my questions is, well, does that include, like, everything? Like, because God commands us to do a lot of things. God wants us to do a lot of things. Like, how we live generally, not even just actions and lists. Like, um, and some of those things make sense to do together. Like, you run up, like, confessing sins, like, or, like, encouraging one another or something like that. But some of them aren't necessarily that way. Um, I don't disagree that that's what a church should be doing, is doing God's work together. And even that we should be doing that, but like what that is or what that actually looks like, I have a problem with just through my experience because what through my limited experiences, like the churches I've been to don't feel like they're doing those things. And I know that's taking it from an abstract to a specific and it is just my experiences, like but then I struggle like, well what is that really what the purpose of the church should be doing is doing these specific things. Does that make sense? It does. It's a very good question because really what you're wrestling with is okay, I hear what you're saying and I'm hear what you're describing, but when I look, I don't see that, right? And that is actually where people begin to critique what is happening in many, many churches. You know, if you look back to Acts, what I know, again, even Morgan warned us, don't idealize that church, but you see this explosion of the Holy Spirit. And immediately the first reaction, other than they're preaching in the streets and thousands are coming to Christ, but their next thing is they're selling possessions, they're moving in together, they're meeting needs together. It's almost like the response to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit is all this togetherness. Contrast that with what we have today for church, which is I've got to make it fit into your busy life um, and I can't ask for too much commitment from you. And by the way, that's not entirely your fault. It's actually the church's fault. There are a lot of young people and old people who want to be asked for a commitment, who want to give it all, and who want to just not just buy into a programmatic kind of thing that's prepackaged and made to be convenient and just looks like everything else in suburbia. Like they want somebody to come up to them and go, if you want to be part of this church, like you've got to be here every night and you've got to give away your money and you've got to move in next door or else we can't have you. And I think that some people would be hugely attracted to that. So what you're saying is I, I, I see that and I think that's the calamity that many of our churches are facing. And maybe that's why we feel it's a little bit empty of an exercise because we think, well, if it was the way you were describing it or the way the scriptures kind of painted out to be or what I think it is, that's one thing. But I don't see that. And I think that's true. You don't. Well, and if it isn't, like, is there a purpose in going? Like, if it isn't, like, meeting what it should be, like, is there a purpose in going? Like, and I don't grant you, like, I can get anything positive potentially out of anything, you know? Like, so, I mean, yeah, I could, I'm not saying, like, yes, I want to look for an excuse to get out of church. That's not at all what it is. Like, but, like, a lot of times I've gone, like, I leave. And I, I don't feel like there was any reason why I should have gone. Like, I could have done something better that would have been more worthwhile. Not saying, like, yeah, I'm a perfect person. I always do worthwhile things. But, like, I, I struggle with that, like, if it isn't what it should be or even very close. I know nothing's going to be ideal. I'm saying, like, if it's really not even doing any of those important things then I would say, one, the worst answer I could give you, but probably the closest one to what I believe Jesus commands is, out of obedience you should. A better answer probably than what you're looking for, one that maybe might be closer to convincing, 
either it means that we need to be planting churches that do those things, or we need to get enough of our friends to go to one of those churches or find a church that is closer. Like if, it's, if you think it's too far away and you have no ability to influence it, that's one thing. And that might be a factor in you considering a church. But, you know, if, if, if all the people that were checked out of churches, I mean, still who had faith, but who were just kind of sitting on the sidelines, if you got some of those people to rush in with the passion that you could ignite in them, I think they would overwhelm some of the expressions of Christianity that we have. It's not so much a question at that point of, and I, I know you're not saying it this way of like, what is in it for me? You're saying, actually, I'm going and I'm not seeing and I feel like it's not going to be there. Okay, maybe there are some, some churches where I'd say that's a right judgment. But maybe you need to find a place where you and enough of the people like you can go in and say, we want this thing to be real and it's not. You're going to find one of two things. It will either become that way or you will find out in humility some of the reasons why they couldn't make it that way. There are some limitations to us, right? And, and I find that, especially among young adults, we have ideals sometimes that when we put them into practice, we find out that we really don't have as much energy to see them through to fruition as we think. So one of two things is going to happen. It's either going to happen or you're at least going to be at least a little bit humbled by it as you experience it. Jolene? Um, I feel like sometimes um, I've gone to churches and been like, well, it didn't have this, it didn't have that, and it didn't have that. And, and I'm being too quick to judge when... You know, first of all, it was one visit. Maybe I didn't, you know, seek the people that actually are doing the change there because it was one visit. And and also, what can I bring to the table? A lot of times, I feel like oftentimes we, you know, we go to church and we're constantly asking, what can, what, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? How can I be fed? How can I be uplifted? When, when I feel like, you know, we were put on this, earth to glorify God and like you know worship him and I and I feel like why are we not going to church with the with the thought in our minds how how can I worship God today how can I give back to God today what kind of you know how can I glorify him today you know but instead we're too busy you know critiquing you know the worship and I'm guilty of this you know critiquing, critiquing the worship critiquing the message critiquing the fact that someone sitting next to me didn't say hi or you know we're just too invested in in what we need at that moment, and I feel like we're fall, we're, they're going to fall short. They're human, you know. AJ, um, a couple of things. Like one thing that Jordan brought up is also that critique and those like we have these expectations of what a church should look like and what you know. Well, it didn't have this or that. And it didn't feed me here. It didn't do this. And I would, I guess it's more of a question I'm posing to everybody and, and to yourself as well. Is you see that maybe more Christians now will be becoming involved in more than one church. Um, and, and like for example, I consider Exodus a church. I consider it a, a function of the churches. You mentioned so eloquently before about how churches have different functions. The mass is not just the, the one function of the church, there's other outlets to it. You get involved in those and that's how you start to plant that seed in that foundation. And um, I feel from my experience now is I'm involved in more than one church and I feel that I get different things and I encounter different people and, and notice different things. Some things I like more than others, but I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm trying to answer that question or ask that question of myself and I'm glorifying God. So my question is to you and to everybody they have an answer is, is do you see that becoming more of a, a trend or a pattern of a Christian life or a Christian living? Well, it would be definitely interesting because there's a trend for people to check out of church entirely. You know, either a, a large majority of them maintain their faith but check out of church. A substantial minority of them check out of church and their faith. Okay. Uh, it would be strange to also have at the same time a separate group of people who are like at a buffet table sampling churches 
uh, they kind of they kind of have the opposite issue, which is they like church, but they're looking for different things from it. If I were to pick between those two, I'd say the one of at least being engaged in multiple churches is better than none. However, at some point, you you are starting to to drift from one of the purposes of the church is that collective nature would hopefully be a place where you can find real covenant community where somebody could hold you accountable. Like, not to speak about you, but if you went to four places, which would be the place where somebody could come to you and say, AJ, you're currently in a state of sin that I can't really allow you to continue down this path without me at least speaking into your life. If you had one of those places, or maybe all of them, then I'd say, wow, you're very blessed, you might be able to do it. But I would start to doubt at some point the, the efficacy of being able to be part of all these different places and still have a place where you are really growing as a disciple, being led in a way where there's authority and discipline and structure, where you're really in communion, where you're known, where you know others, where you can speak into the lives of others, people can speak into you. Um, but I think it's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying you have to ask that question. There's a line where you say, am I doing this so I could just sample and never really commit? Or am I really committed to two or three different bodies? And if you were, you know, that, I, I don't, I don't, I, that isn't beyond my conception that that could happen, right? I don't see that as a trend um, unless people are sampling. Like, I, I think that there will be a few people, in other words, there will be a small number of people who will really be committed to multiple places. The trend actually is that people don't want to be committed really anywhere. So if, as long as the method of going to different places isn't a way to get out of being rooted and grounded where somebody can actually know you enough to say, hey, um, how are you doing in this area? Because I noticed this about you. And at some point, you have to be the one asking the question, am I really being obedient? Am I following the intent? Am I really getting the benefit of being part of a local body? That would be the, the concern. Okay. Now here's a question at the other extreme, kind of the way that AJ was asking one. You asked this, mega church versus small local church. This is somebody's card. Which is really more effective and what are the pros and cons of each? This is where I thought I'd bring in some people to talk about this in a video because I frankly cannot be objective about this subject. <laughs> it's just, it's not going to work. So I'm going to read to you a few statistics. Uh, I hate the small church. I want every church to be huge. Let me just give you some idea of why this question probably came up on the card and what's going on. Here's a report from the report on fastest growing churches in America, the 100 fastest growing churches in America by Outreach Magazine. It says a noticeable trend this year is that an overwhelming 75 of the 100 largest churches in the survey are using a multi-site approach to ministry. Of those 75 churches, 19 of them have two campuses, while the remaining 56 have three or more campuses. Two of those 56 are doing ministry in more than 10 sites. Among the 100 fastest growing churches, we found that 59 are multi-site and 38 churches on the list have three or more sites. It appears that once churches reach a certain level of growth, they are choosing to expand via satellite campuses. The reasons vary. They might be landlocked, they don't want to build larger facilities or members living far from the main campus. The critique of this has been this growing idea of watching a huge megachurch on a screen at a distant satellite campus is that it's created a whole consumer structure. It's a celebrity-driven culture. I mean, why else would you need to beam the pastor is the critique. And again, this isn't my direct critique, although I agree with this critique. 
The critique is that if you're really trying to create a celebrity-driven church, that would probably be one of the best explanations for why you couldn't have another pastor start another church, even if you're going to use marketing and branding to use that church name and get it out there to 10 sites or five sites or three sites. Why is it that everybody wants to see the one pastor on a video screen many miles away create the celebrity-driven culture? Uh, it's really focused on Sunday, very Sunday-centric, ignoring other things in the uh, week. It creates a financial huge juggernaut to keep this going. You've got to keep the people coming because you create these elaborate systems and these facilities. And you focus on what one critic called, you focus on seating people over sending people. Now before we get too critical about them, here's some statistics. Baylor did a study on megachurches and here's what they found. There are some advantages. In megachurches, there's a higher adherence among congregants to Orthodox Christian theology, which is kind of strange. You would think that people just go there kind of, you know, might not really know what's going on, but actually survey after survey shows that they have a higher adherence to Orthodox Christian uh, doctrine, and they have a higher level of involvement in, the, in their local churches. They're very excited about being there, and they actually tend to attend more, attend more regularly, and attend more frequently, meaning not just on Sundays. So that's kind of a response to that Sunday-centric view. Believe it or not, the terminology, they've actually got churches now when they reach a certain level. They're not called megachurches. There's actually a term being developed called gigachurches, if you can imagine that. Tell me, tell me that we're not too American in this structure. <laughs> that like mega isn't enough. We've got to go giga. Like when do we get to Terra Church? Let's get to that. Sky Jathani is an editor for Leadership Magazine, works in Christianity Today International in their magazines, and he has noted that he thinks there is a bubble developing in the megachurch movement. Here's why. In 1970, there were 10 churches in America that had over 2,000 members. 10. In 1980, there were 50. In 1990, there were 500. And in 2005, there were 1,500 churches in America that have over 2,000 members. And here's where I think I'd like you to kind of frame this video. Why am I even showing it? Well, first, it's a very good question on the card. Like, what is this type? As we move into styles of churches and what is a church, and next week you'll see a few more questions that I'm not going to go into today, but just so you see where they're going. Like, is church shopping okay? How do I know church is right for me? Is there ever uh, a time when I'm supposed to change church. Like we're going to be dealing with just those kind of questions to close out the series. But one of the questions you may have is this question about a small church, local church versus a mega church. Because we've been focusing on this ability to be known, to be accountable, to have discipline, to have a pastor, to have authority. And a lot of people would say that's very difficult to do in a huge church where no one knows your name. So is that a church? Now, we're, like once you say, well, the dinner party may or may not be a church, but the question we're asking now is, is a megachurch being able to satisfy some of the very things we've been asking about? In those large contexts, can those things happen? Here's another fear that people have. Where is the growth coming in most megachurches? From small local churches. They're like a vacuum cleaner. They're like sucking up believers from all the other churches. And these other churches are growing. The fear that people have that maybe somebody like Sky Jathani would have or somebody else might raise, including myself, is what happens if this fad breaks apart and we've just sucked dry all these smaller churches? 
What happens if we just continue to blow this bubble up bigger and bigger and bigger with larger and larger megachurches and believers are leaving and nobody even knows because you don't know anybody. Nobody would ever follow up with you if you left. Just something to think about. Here's what you're going to see in the debate. Ed Stetzer is the head of Lifeway Research. He's the one that wrote that book, Lost and Found. He's actually going to defend megachurches. So I love the book. Now I'm going to go, right? And he's going to be debating David Fitch. He's debating a guy who's part of a local covenant community church. And you can just hear in their discussion their different views about what constitutes a church. They're going to both throw up many of the things that we've talked about on this previous screen. You're going to hear some of them. And they're going to say, can you do these things in a megachurch or can you not? And he's going to be talking about his view that, you know what, the reason we're small, the reason our church is this way is because we believe that you can best express the church in that way. And I don't know how you could do that in a megachurch. And you're going to hear Ed Stetzer kind of defend that. And then we might take a couple comments at the end just to hear from you. This is only about 20 minutes. So just watch this and see them talk about it. Well, let's get back to this whole... Um uh, uh, mega church thing. Yeah, you're, are I've you, heard about that. You're an interim pastor of a church that's how big? Uh, 9,000 members. 9,000 9, members? 9,363 members. I know them each by name. We have missional relationships. <laughs> we build community together. <laughs> okay, so my question is now um, uh, there are some things you can do with 9,000 yeah. members, and there are some things you can't do. There I've are some limits. Yes. Okay, what would be some of the limits? Of, of a church of 9,000 members. Well, keeping in mind that I'm the interim, so there's a little bit of a different dynamic there. The yeah. pastor died, and I'm filling in about a year and a half now, probably be there a couple of years. Yeah. Um, I think some things are, is that you cannot, uh, you cannot have community unless you work to create community. Now, in our case, we have, I think, 94% of our people on Sunday are involved in small group. 94%? So, yeah, it's very high. It's kind of, and it's not, I mean, I wasn't there when they did this, but they really made a big emphasis on that. Yeah. So their small group attendance is 94% of their Sunday morning attendance on a given week. It's a very robust, small community. But I think, ultimately, the setting where we are, you know, we have thousands of people who sit in rows facing forward, lined up like shelves at Walmart, who have little interaction with what takes place on the stage, yeah. I think that the large group gathering does not foster community. Now, we obviously would say we try to find that in other settings. But I think the, it also, it is, you know, most, many people come to megachurches to heal and to hide. They, they, they've been hurt at another church, so they come to hang out and they hide. And then, and then what happens is, is eventually they get disconnected from the mission, they're not involved, and they can say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm still going to church, but I'm just resting or healing, whatever term that they use. Yep. And I think that we cannot go, you know, here in, in your, in your uh, facility where you have church, you could see, well, you know, there's someone who's been there three or four weeks, they're not engaged in God's mission, let's talk to them, let's encourage them, let's provoke them mm -hmm. to love and good deeds. Yeah. We can't. There can be a disconnect between the thousands of people who sit there on Sunday morning if they don't get involved. Now, we have means to do that, but ultimately, we can't have that face-to-face -face relationship in a large group gathering and say, man, you're not involved, we really want to see you get involved. So those are some of the, the, uh, the limits uh, of it, and I, I think I would agree with you on it. Uh, the question is, can uh, a church of 9,000 people uh, be the church? In other words, uh, let's say we define the church. Well, I mean, we have to define the church biblically because sure. we just went through this missiology, ecclesiology yeah. debate, right? Uh, Okay, so maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, give, me the, give me your top three things that you say define what the church is. What are marks of a biblical church? Uh, yeah. Scriptural authority, uh, biblical leadership. Um, I probably remember what I, I have a list of six. Uh, uh, mission, uh, practicing the ordinances, um, covenant community, 
and I'm not remembering them all, which is uh, to my shame since I just taught this yesterday. Uh, but yeah, it happens I would say all the time. Yeah. Uh, okay, so covenant community, yeah. uh, co uh, a committed community. Sure. Okay, so this is one of my beefs with megachurches. Uh, we and say we have some beefs with megachurches. We've read. So, because you, you and I, <laughs> just full disclosure here, I wrote an article, Can Mega Be Missional? and talked about some ways churches are trying to be missional. Within a few weeks, unrelated, I'm sure, you wrote an article, Why Mega Churches Can't Be Missional. So, we, we, we have some data. I had no idea that was going yeah. on. <laughs> I didn't. It was coincidental uh, or yeah. providential from my theological persuasion. And so, 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 again, we would differ. I would say it is harder having planted churches uh, and, you know, small communities uh, in cities, it is harder for a large suburban megachurch to be missional than it is for a house church or something of that sort. But I do not think it is impossible, and, uh, and I, I would disagree with some of your conclusions. Yeah, okay. Uh, can you give me one conclusion that you would disagree with? That megachurches magnify results in such a way that it seems like more lives are being changed than actually are. You would disagree with me on that? Yeah. You don't agree with me on that? Yeah. I think they magnify results, but I think statistically, remember this new study came out of the Baylor, Baylor folks on kind of religion in America, statistically people in megachurches have a higher adherence to Orthodox Christian doctrines and a higher level of involvement in their local church and people in small churches. Okay, but also, because I was just uh, talking to a class, a doctor uh, a ministry class yesterday at Fuller, and Todd Hunter was the... the professor and uh, he said that the statistics are of megachurches that over 70 percent of them come from some high church background where they already had foundation oh, some other church background yeah yeah oh, some yeah, other no foundation yeah. so we're not okay so let's just i'm agreeing that they're not that we're not i mean this is there was a usa today story just recently that i was uh, quoted in saying there's not trend about megachurches saying you know you can make something big and if there's no transformation the christian message is not advanced i got a lot of complaint emails about that i think a lot of megachurches are simply shuffling sheep around but i think the question you have to ask is 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 not uh is not are they bad or are they good are there good ones and are there bad ones and I would say the answer is, is there are ones who are seeking to be missional, engaged in God's global mission, God's local yeah. mission. And I would say that they're there. And I think that some of them are engaged at a very high level. Yeah, but would you agree that um, a megachurch has the uh, ability? Because j just look at the nature of it. It's hard to walk in. You, you've already said that uh, you hi you're able to hide there. You're able to yeah. be anonymous. Yeah. You're able to heal there. I don't really know what that means yeah. in terms of heal. Uh, in other words, you're able to wait out some time and well, maybe people not get be hurt from a church. They end up at a megachurch. Very common. Yeah. You, you know, I got a church split at so-and-so, so I come because to Because the they can kind of go to church without being involved hide. in that. Yeah, and, sure, they and, heal. And that keeps exactly, them, exactly. That's kind of a different kind of healing than confess your sins one to another and you yeah. have a heal, no, it's, right? It's their perspective. Is From their perspective, they're coming to heal and to hide. Yeah. So the question is, you come in and uh, you're, you're not able to get to know somebody. Okay. So some, there's some basic dynamics that if we think this is central to being the church, I don't know if you, the church can go on here. For instance, you need to know other people. Mm -hmm. If you need to confess your sins one to another or speak truth in love, this is where I think transformation happens. In fact, it's, it's right there in Ephesians chapter 4. We speak truth to one another. The gifts take place and we grow. Mm -hmm. We're not tossed in, to and fro any longer. We grow into the stature of Christ, right? Agreed. If we can't, All of those things I think are biblically mandated and must <clears throat> take place in a church for it to be biblical. And so here's, what, here's, here's the problem I come up with. You come into a big mega church, there's uh, 8,000 people there. It's hard to get to know people. You naturally, almost by uh, human nature, go to people you already know, people you like, people you're comfortable with, and the communal groups that take shape because they don't have pastoral oversight. Because how can you have pastoral oversight when you don't know... Uh, uh, 9,000 people, how many groups do you have to have? You know, 100, 200, 300? Yeah. 
Uh, there's no pastoral oversight, so what happens is we get together to share good times, be comfortable with one another, and none of those dynamics take place. None of the gifts start to, uh, uh, we, we don't get to know one another's gifts, and we don't start to share either, uh, you know, in terms of our healing gifts, in terms of our counseling gifts, in terms of our scriptural gifts. And so what it breaks down to is these little enclaves of getting together to have a good time. I would say that you certainly have described bad, bad megachurches. And I would, could describe bad house churches. But I think ultimately the reality is, is that megachurches have to work hard. And I believe they have to work harder than smaller churches do to foster and create those things. But they would say they do. And they would list reasons. And there are some statistics that would say that they would. But they would list reasons and say, here's how we do these things. And also I would say, I think that argument, you know, the anti-megachurch thing comes in cycles. Yeah. You know, the megachurch movement's going to die. I heard it 20 years ago. Uh, actually, there are more megachurches today than yes. and it's accelerating every year. Now the largest and there are less small churches. And there are less small churches. <laughs> and, and, and so the challenge is, and that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make it good. That doesn't necessarily make it right. But I think the megachurch movement's not going away. For me, my desire is how can we help to get those churches on mission? And I think they can get on mission. I don't think the system of large attendance inherently means that we cannot be on mission. Or else, I think that's kind of a very ethnocentric, American emerging postmodern view. Because around the world, in Nigeria, in places in Korea, in you know, places throughout South America, we have thousands of Christians who gather together that are engaged in significant transformational ministries, but do it in large community. And so my concern is, is that, that angst, and I, I'm, I'm okay with angst, I've got angst, but angst against megachurch distracts. Uh, what I would say to people who are anti-megachurch is, that's great, go plant a house church. Go be in a small church. But the reality is, I believe we need all kinds of churches and, you know, I, I think God's using the megachurch in Korea and he's using the house church in China. We want to hold our models loosely and our Jesus and his mission firmly. Okay, so what about, what about this then? Uh, the goal to be a megachurch is a misguided goal. That's probably fair. Yeah, that's probably fair. I, I, I see some pastors who get very enthusiastic. They have a vision to make a huge impact. For me, I prefer them to have a multiplying vision rather than a mega vision. And if you become a mega, but you're multiplying, and you're multiplying at every level, believers, small groups, ministries, uh, churches, then uh, for me, I, I think that's a different issue. Um, I think in the 70s, you saw a lot of people with, I want to plant a mega church. I want to pastor a mega church. That's probably still around. I, I think that's probably a wrong motivation. I would say I want God's name and fame to be more widely known to be a better motivation by far. So I think that's fair. Okay, well... And let me say one more thing. <clears throat> I think people are... I, I, they're, there's different wings. For some, they're anti-megachurch. I'm not there. And that's, you know, I, I don't find it particularly helpful to take a part of the body of Christ and say, you know, these must people are all mindless automatons coming through and they're, you know, because some guy on TV, you know, is holding up and saying, you know, let, let's all be positive thinking. They think that everyone's like that. There are bad megachurches. There are good megachurches. But my concern of the whole process is, is that there's another wing that's kind of obsessed with the megachurch. And they believe that their church is not helpful, is not biblical, is not getting the job done when it's not a mega church. I've never or planted not a mega church. Towards or it's not heading towards one. Yeah. We planted a church down the road from uh, Andy Stanley's church in Atlanta, North Point Church, small struggling congregation of eight billion. And um, great church, good, I mean, they're doing some good things. Uh, but it was interesting, there are people in that community who'd say, was that what you planned to be? He said, no, we're, we, I mean, if that happens, great, we're not anti that. But for them, that was the model of success. And I think that creating a model of success that's based on size, not upon faithfulness, is a problem. Okay. Well, we found a point of agreement here. It was here. a tender moment. I'm it's feeling wonderful. good about this right now. Uh, so. Okay, now, when... Okay, so how does a megachurch engage 
it's community without turning every anything and everything into a program. Well, How I think do it, it does it through small. I mean, le the levers are small, and I think ultimately, you know, you you the building and the facility becomes the the place like here, it, it becomes a gathering point so that mission might be done in the context yeah. in the community. But I would say that I think it is harder. And, and the, the metaphor, the picture I use is a picture of a yo-yo. If I know it's a strange one, but if you take a yo-yo and you sort of uh, let the string hang down, you have the yo-yo and you spin it around, mm -hmm. there are two forces that are operating on the yo-yo. One is, it's, in the popular sense, people would call it the uh, centrifugal force. You know, it's pushing outward. To, and so the yo-yo has a force, it's technically inertia, but people call it centrifugal force. So you swing it around, there's this force making it go outward. There's a simultaneous force exerted by the string called the centripetal force that's pulling it inward. And those forces are at perfect balance or else the yo-yo yeah. flies off. Here, here I think the problem is, and all metaphors break down, so it's not a perfect example, but I think that we are given in the gospel a centrifugal commission, direction, and orientation. I think the more that you have, like a megachurch, like my church, the more you have to service the string. And so what happens is, is that the string becomes progressively larger until the string becomes the focus of the mission, not the outward focus, not the centrifugal inertia into the context. And so for many megachurches, they're just barely trying to staff the nursery, let alone being engaged in ministries to reach and serve the poor. Uh, it's it's. You know, and this is again uh, one of the big problems. And I don't even so. So to me, I'm much more pessimistic that it can be overcome. In yeah. fact, I've heard it several times. I've heard from megachurch pastors saying, who finally come to the conclusion, I cannot be a megachurch pastor and a Christian. Yeah. At the yeah. same time, I've, I've heard similar things, and I respect that. I would. I've seen mega, many megachurch pastors who are friends of mine create systems that they loathe. And I think at the end of the day, here, but here's my only concern. That's my only concern. Here's a concern: is that I just think what we is better for us to do is to recognize that when Christians have had the economic ability and the uh, liberty to do so, they gather gather in larger and larger groups. I think for me the issue is is can we get those people on mission at a higher level? Yeah. So perhaps that's part of my motivation is is I want to see them on mission, recognizing that the system, in the case of all human systems, see I don't think I don't think the incarnational house church is naturally inclined to be missional. I mean, have you been around some house church people? Some of them are on mission. Some of them, you know, they're kind of a little scary. Yeah. And, you know, they're but there are some organizational sociological patterns and habits that are enforced by the megachurch that almost uh, work against being outwardly focused as opposed to inwardly. Yeah. And, okay. and there's just, uh, so, you know, several, there's two or three megachurches within uh, shouting distance of where we're sitting right now. Um, they have to work very hard to pay the bills, yeah. to pay the monster costs of the facilities. Yeah, to service the string. They have yeah. to bring, yeah, to service the string. Mm -hmm. And by its very nature, when you pull thousands of people in and you organize them to leave, in and out, shuffling, that whole process, if it's done efficiently, creates a mindset that, oh, I've gone to church. And uh, it, 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 so, so I'm a virtue ethics kind of guy. What is this? What kind of people sure. is this forming and shaping? 
And one of the reasons why we're sitting around in a circle today, one of the reasons why we have a small room here, uh, is because, uh, and one of the reasons why the, the worship here is liturgically driven, is because it shapes us into the mission of God. Sure. Sure. Uh, you can't come here and be anonymous. It's pretty hard sh- in the it's circle. It's the way it's laid out, sure. Yeah, the altar is in the middle, although, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're sitting here now, but the altar is in I the middle. I kind of feel bad that we're in the spot uh, I kind of, of feel altar. weird myself so about this, odd. you know. The so cross is usually right here, you know. Wow. So it's all about us now. It wasn't earlier. But Luckily, there's no one else sitting That's around right, here right. except right. the cameras. Yeah, okay, okay, good. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that shaped you into a, a missional mindset as opposed to coming into a large auditorium, getting something, and leaving. How do you combat that? That How do you even deal with that shaping and formation? I think you've left out a part that every good megachurch would have, and that's small community. Is that you, you've, you've, you've pointed out the dangers and the foibles of the large group gathering. And I don't think, I'm reviewing mentally what you just said, I don't think there's much I would disagree with you there. I, I think the question you have to ask is twofold. Number one, can Christians who love the Lord attend churches like that, and they do uh, by the millions? Yeah. And secondarily, is there a means that can provide that which you listed? And I think the answer is small community, small group community. Is it perfect? No. But what I would say is, is that. Uh, I think it comes back to maybe part of our earlier conversation is, is that, that for many people, it's that kind of large group setting that they're going to get lost in. But at the same time, if a church has a strategy to bring them into community, that is where they can be found and converts can be made there. Yeah. But I'm not saying it's perfect. I would, again, I want to remind you, what I'm saying is, is that it is harder to, the more you have, the harder it is for you to be focused on something other than what you have. And so I'm agreeing with you, but what I'm saying is I think what we need at this point is to get all hands on deck for the mission of God. You know, I think you can look at churches like Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, Tim Keller Pastors, you know, church of uh, multiple thousands of people that's, uh, that are engaged in small community, engaged in issues and, and areas of social justice, uh, well-known as a partner in the community, a vital partner in the community. I would look at uh, Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the, uh, and, and the writings that they have put out that talks about the, uh, you know, the church of irresistible influence and, and uses a, attraction in a different way, that people yeah. will see us as partners in, in societal transformation, where they do speak of justice and speak of Jesus. You know, I can think of, of churches like uh, Joel Hunter's church in uh, Northland Church in Orlando, Florida, that uh, a distributed church is central to their mission is to get what they do on Sunday morning into homes, into communities, into places of service and transformation. So I, I do see examples. Now, here's, here's the challenge. I can give really bad examples, too. And when we give the really bad examples, see, part of the challenge is we tend to define those that we disagree with by the worst expressions of who they are. And I think that we both know, we can name some, probably shouldn't, but we can name some that are all about them. It's it's driven by one person, and that's kind of the agenda, and it becomes a cult of personality. But I do think, and I do see churches that are getting people involved at mission to higher level. And I would say to you that recent research does show that megachurches have people involved at a higher level than average, medium, or small churches. However, to be fair, that's comparing megachurches against all medium and small churches, not necessarily intentional missional communities, which I would think would have people involved at a higher level. You know, it's hard to give examples. It's hard to go around and uh, cite this example and that example. And, and you know, uh, I teach theology. I don't teach missiology. And I don't do a lot of statistical work. You're the, you're the pro there. I just uh, made all that up, though, pretty much. Yeah. See, that's the great thing is you couldn't counter me because, you know, you could say, I know what a study. What can I say? Exactly. The guy's just, got millions of statistics. No, you just make it up. It, where, yeah. you know, Lyle Schaller has a T-shirt. Eighty-seven oh. percent of statistics are made up on the spot, so that's all you need. <laughs> but there are some. There is some data that shows that. Yeah. Uh, theologically, um, 
I have a problem. Just fundamentally, fundamentally, theologically, megachurch, the, the medium there distorts the message. The way we go about being church. Now, if you say you had six marks there, let's say uh, Luther had, I think he had seven or eight, Menno Simons had six, but they all include the fellowship no of question. believers. I think you have to have that. You say that it can be done in megachurch. I'm saying the very way you organize it thwarts it. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible. And I could give you a few examples. Yes. The best and the brightest of megachurches who have thrown their hands up and say, we give up. Yeah. I will also say it's very difficult in a small church. Difficult okay? everywhere. Yeah, because our society works against yeah. it. But when you um, build a church to make it comfortable to go to church and convenient uh, and, and uh, kind of assimilate into the structures, the very structures of society which make communities so difficult, you know, i.e. individualism, uh, make it convenient, uh, you're going to get this and, and we're going to give you a sermon and here's some nice little points and take this home and you'll be a better Christian and uh, blah, 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 blah. I've heard that sermon. Yeah, yeah you know, the, the point is uh, when you just assimilate to that, right. that makes community by definition more difficult. Yeah, and I would say that what you described I would agree with 100%, but when you have a large group of people who you teach to live on mission in their community, to build community in their neighborhoods and with fellow believers who adopt and then engage their neighborhoods for the cause of the gospel, that they happen to gather together on Sunday morning in a large gathering and have worship and have Bible teaching, but that becomes a training and equipping time where they then live on community there, I, I, I think and I've seen it done. I think the challenge is Why would you do system. it? Why would you build a church for 9,000 people as opposed to when it gets to 200, 250? Split off, start another one. Split off, start another one. I would. That's what I would do. Remember, I'm the Why interim. Why would you do it? I'm night. the interim. Why would any megachurch do what they do? I think for many megachurches, what happens is, and of course, I don't, I'm not, I don't have, there's not like a bureau of megachurch opinion that I represent by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> and I've never served in a megachurch until this one. Um, you know, I, I think what happens is, is they begin to teach, they begin to preach, they begin to show forth the gospel in their lives, and people respond to it. Some people bring lost friends, some people bring saved friends, and the church begins to grow. Now, for me, my preference is, is that my, the last church we planted in Atlanta, two or three years ago, we, we planted a church every year. That was our commitment. Every year, we'd plant a daughter church, and we would send out people, not just say we're planting a church and give yeah. 50 bucks and say we're planting it. So for me, I want everything to multiply. That's central to what I understand. But again, I know many churches that are engaged in a high level of multiplication. Bob Roberts Church, Northwood, Texas. But the question is, why would you do the megachurch strategy where you increase by astronomically the cost of facilities? You change the whole dynamic by, oh, now I've got a huge mortgage. Huge. I mean, I'm just talking yeah, millions, well, tens of millions, millions of, and millions hundreds, of dollars. Yeah. Now I've got to do this, yeah. and I've got to get more people in here. And the whole production machine goes into place, sets in a dynamic, which, in, in my opinion, counteracts uh, what it means to be church. Why would you do that versus? I would do both. I, I don't have a problem with, as I'm engaged in multiplication, and more people want to come. Bob Roberts was the example I was giving. They planted nine churches out of their church within two miles of their church, sending people out, et cetera, et cetera. But their church continues to grow. They're highly engaged in their community, highly engaged globally. Their church continues to grow. It's running 3,000 today. You know, I would say that they have been Where is faithful church? to multiply. Keller, Texas, yeah. outside of Dallas. I, I want to talk, when I talk about church and, and missional church, I think, and, and if we talk about megachurch, we can talk about a couple of places that it really works well in North America. Yeah. Texas, Texas, California, Florida, Georgia are kind of the, the states. The that, Christian parts of yeah. the, the, the really Christian. We would not call them the Christian parts. We would <clears> still <throat> think there are a few lost people. Christianized. Yes, more Christian than where you and I are There's from. a lot of Christians to be warehoused yes. in yes. Texas yeah. Lots or of Florida yeah. or Georgia. And they need to be brought on mission. 
You're right. Yeah. I would say we're in a warehouse. We're one of the ways on to bring them on mission, yeah. you feel, is the megachurch. No, I say that's one of the ways that they have chosen to be a part of, and now that they have, we need to get them on mission there. Okay. So, but well, I think I'm, our disagreements are pretty obvious at this point. You no, want to go okay. uh, arm wrestle in the I back think, room? I think you could take me. I'm not so sure. <laughs> that. All right, that's enough of that. <laughs> Anybody want to throw in a comment? Uh, something that struck you, Stephanie? I don't remember the exact terminology that he used, but the gentleman who is, um, I guess, defending the position of the megachurch. So again, I don't remember his exact terminology, but he was talking about how the model should be less significant and Jesus should be what we're really focused on. It, it was just, it was so poignant to me, and I thought, wow, that's it right there. Yeah, his terminology that he makes, he's used that in articles before, is we should hold our models loosely and Jesus firmly, right? That's kind of the terminology he uses. By the way, that's Ed Setzer. The, he's probably one of the better-known sociologists in the church. He and George Barna are probably most out there. He's got two PhDs, two master's degrees, very smart guy. But you can tell he's gracious and open, and he's on all sides of issues. In this case, he's probably been asked to specifically state these. By the way, I think that modeled like a good way of discussing things in the church. <laughs> would that more people would be as gracious with one another as that, yeah. I think um, the whole goal of becoming a mega church was kind of undersold here. I think, I feel like it's a lot bigger than it actually is. Um, and I feel like, like even a lot of pastors, there's literature out there I've read. The plan of growing bigger, and when you're at 250 people, you need to be staffing and doing things as though you have 500. Then when you have 500, you need to be doing things as though you have 1,000. And I feel like that's out there and um, is really prominent in some circles. There is actually a whole area of the church that's called the church growth you know, model that was, has been very popular for a long time, where it really is about if you're not growing, you're not really serving the Lord. And there's so much literature that sounds like you're in a business. It sounds like marketing. And some people are starting to push back on that. I think not enough people. That would be my opinion. Thing. Andrew? Their agreements and their disagreements were obvious and they were their stance was. But something the, the mega church proponent said over and over and over again was you have to assume that they're going to be involved. Talking about his people, that you have to assume that at some point they're going to make a step toward directional, missional direction, where the, the smaller church guy was saying, that's our job. We have to push them there. We have to get them to move there. Which makes and to me it makes more sense to have someone come up beside you and say hey we got this opportunity you want to go let's do this and we'll come alongside you and walk and grow you where in the mega church it's the flock that's saying well i'm not doing anything i've got to go do something now which is chaos to order that doesn't make any sense and it's not just though who has to direct you one of the examples i think would be easier to understand is think of a a, a mold for cookies. Your, your cookie is going to be shaped the way your mold is. What David Fitch was trying to argue is the way we do ministry will shape you. It will mold you a certain way. So if you go to a large production, a large attendance, large hall, you're going to be that kind of Christian because your formation is impacted by the way that ministry is done and the way the church is there. If you're in a small, local, accountable setting, you will be shaped that way as well. Because he's saying that it's not just pastoral oversight, which is important, but it's even the environment helps to inform how you're being shaped as a Christian. That's his argument, at least. And I think there's something to that. Comments over here? Um, I was just kind of agreeing with Andrew. It seemed more, the, the dude that looked like Michael Keaton was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so he's 
have other options, whether in the smaller church you're saying, hey, we have these for you, as in the mega church you're saying, all right, hide and heal for as long as you want, but if you're done, we have these opportunities. But to have 300 or so smaller communities within that larger community, it just, it seems almost like, you know, just ants on a handheld to me at some point. By the way, one of the challenges of 300 small group communities is who's teaching them. At some of the megachurches I know, what ends up happening is the pastor goes into a video booth, literally, and records a message and then gives out small group questions. So they're watching the pastor on Sunday, then they're meeting together as a smaller group and watching a video and doing questions, which is better than probably just getting together and having chips and dip, right? But, but there's still that issue, and they both acknowledge that it's, it's still some issue with pastoral oversight and the teaching that's going on. Jill and then Monique. This may be kind of obvious, but what do they mean by missional? Like missional this, missional that, they're throwing it around a lot and I don't believe. Yeah, it's a buzzword among a lot of uh, church, like, uh, you know, trying to understand how church is to be done. Everybody agrees that church should be missional, being on mission, but nobody, nobody agrees on what the word missional means. So there's lots of books, including one of the books called Missional Church, among all those other churches' books. So. Basically, it's a church that's focused not on like mission trips, but being on God's mission and being outwardly focused in the mission that God is doing, as opposed to being inwardly focused, right? It's just a country club church. So it's meant to kind of contrast that. But frankly, there are so many people that use that word, it's become a word that has of dubious like use. Because it's hard to pin down what is a missional church. You get five church experts and they would all disagree uh, in diagnosing whether a church was mission or not. Monique? I think I agree more with the model, like a smaller church, but where I kind of get a little bit more loose with it is that if a, if a mega church is feeding someone or someone needs that, at least it is reaching someone and it's there. And they can do more in terms of like maybe impact higher with money or they have more resources to put together like bigger type programs impact community that way. And so in that, I like like what Stephanie said, how we said, focus on Jesus, keep that firm, and sort of keep everything else loose. Like, let's not argue about it. But there's really something to be said for the point he made, which made church kind of like a corporation where he said, you're binding your hands to the point where your focus has to be numbers because your church will shut down if you can't pay bills. And they are binding themselves in a situation where the focus can more easily be taken off of Christ because you want to keep it going, whether it's like conscious or subconscious. And I think that's really interesting. What's the example that just happened of that kind of megachurch falling apart because of the cost? Crystal Cathedral. Crystal Cathedral just went through that. It's a famous failure. Okay, Andrew, last comment, go ahead. Oh, and then Daniel, then we're done. I just really liked his analogy of the yo-yo and the centrifugal and all that wonderful forces, but <laughs> <laughs> how his, his string starts to grow and he completely forgets to mention that the yo-yo has not changed size. And so you have this massive string spinning a yo-yo that you're now flailing ropes around. Because that yo-yo is the mission, that's it. I mean, it's finite, it's very limited. Okay, Daniel? There are so many more Christians in the world today than there were in the New Testament. Like some people think, okay, you need to know everyone in your church and most people in your church. And I think that's not it's in your community, whether that community is, you know, a self-contained church or it's a community within a city that is in your church. Yeah, I would say that that's not right. I would say, though, that you do need to be known, right? So you don't need to know everybody, but you do need to be in a place where you are known and you know others. Yeah. Right. And I don't think you have to know everybody because I go to a church of 300 and I don't know everybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and so 
I mean, and that might be wrong. I might think, shoot, I knew everybody in my junior high. Why couldn't I know everybody in my church? But you notice over and over, he kept saying that one of the biblical mandates, remember he referenced at one point, there's a list of six, seven, they're referencing the same thing we've been talking about. There are, most people agree there's a list of what churches should do. And one of them is to be in community with one another. And they both agreed. So even megachurch pastors will say that while we're big enough to form a city, we shouldn't. We still need to break up into smaller groups. When I visited down at Saddleback Church, it's the same thing as like the church he was pastoring. They are very proud of the fact that though they have 30,000 people attend on a Sunday and they have all these worship venues, what they're very, and I've heard Rick Warren say this, if you're not part of a small group, you're not part of what you could call a house church, a life group, whatever they call it, you're not really part of this church because you cannot be connected to the people here. So even megachurches agree on the biblical mandate to be in community. It's just that it might be harder. Philip? One question I had which might not be something like that you could answer. Because uh, if they both, then they both agreed, like, yeah, community is important and being in a small group is important. Like, I struggle with the person, they're like, well, then what is the benefit of having them all meet together? Like, uh, of having all these small groups all meet together. Like, why don't they just do all those functions and all meet together separately? Like, and not, I'm not saying I'm totally against megachurches. It just, it's confusing to me, like, why is that? To put myself in the place of the megachurch, and I think there is actually good reason for this. Um, I think a lot of the people who run megachurches believe that there is, there does need to be a place of centrality where we're all on mission together so that we don't have 300 groups all going in the same direction. And one of the ways you do that is by having a central place of worship and teaching. Remember the teaching is very important too. Many of these megachurches are focused on the teaching of an individual. Right? And that is important because they probably do have some sort of special gift of teaching that is teaching the body and helping them to mature if, as Ed says, they're doing it right. If they're a good megachurch, then the purpose of teaching, proclamation, preaching that we said was to mature the body. Remember that, that thing that we looked at right here is there's a reason, so that the whole body may attain full maturity. So if you're doing that, you can't do that in the small groups. And you can't set a vision and a mission for the whole church in the small groups. A lot of the other things, I totally agree, you could do in the small groups and you wouldn't need to go. But there is a sense of celebration and coming together as a whole because we belong to it. Uh, but yeah, even as I say it, I'm kind of getting lost because it's so big that some of that is being lost. I think there is something to be said about the way that churches are commanded to be in Scripture that we should at least try to adhere to. So the question about megachurches is, can they adhere to it? That's actually the question, and it's an open question. I think the two biggest things that I would notice if I were putting this guy on trial like Ed Setzer, and I like Ed, I really do. Um, you notice that he kept saying that there shouldn't be a cult of personality, but every time he referred to a church, he referred it by the person's name. It's Andy Stanley's church, it's Joel Hunter's church, it's Bob Roberts' church. That right there, if I were to convict megachurches, would be the problem. Because that church, you pluck that person out and they fall like a balloon that you just popped, right? And it's just going to fall to the earth. And that is one of the problems is we have built cults of personality. And that answers the second question that was very difficult to answer, which I'm surprised nobody jumped on, is why not plant churches? If you're really into multiplying and if you're so good at multiplying, why not plant hundreds of churches rather than satellites that people watch you? And I think it goes back to that cult of personality. People don't want to go to a daughter church of Andy Stanley or Joel Hunter or Bob Roberts. People want to see that person on the screen. And that, to me, is the place where I get scared. And I don't mean to cast aspersions at these people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what scares me, 
is that when we refer to it, and of course they don't refer to their own church that way, but we all have fallen into this habit of identifying churches with people instead of with Christ. And that kind of, they would all reject it. They would all say, that's not what we're doing, but we're doing it. That means that we can't handle this model very easily. Why not plant churches? I think the answer is because a lot of those people think I can do it better. If I plant churches, I don't know what they're going to do, but I know how to preach and I know people are coming, so let's not mess with the model. Let's grow to 500,000. I can still reach televisions all across the nation. Last comment I'm going to make tonight is this. Jeremy reminded me of this. If you're still skeptical about going to church, this should be the reason of the day. This is it. We've done 30 series as Exodus. I don't know that this has ever happened before, but it's happened now. I and Morgan and Jeremy all agree on this point. <laughs> it is the plan that we're supposed to be part of the local church. And it has nothing to do with the fact that Morgan and Jeremy both work for churches that need your support. So there it is. Why should you be part of the local church? Because John, Morgan, and Jeremy are in unison on this one. And man, if that's ever going to happen again, I wonder how many series we'd have to get to before that happens. Here's what we're going to do. Let's do one song right now of worship. We're going to do a small liturgy for Advent, and then we'll close with one more song. So let's do that.